Good afternoon and welcome to Bible Quest, the New York City, New Jersey Philly edition. I'm Jeff Smelser in Exton, Pennsylvania. And Joe Works is in Fairlawn, New Jersey. Good afternoon, Joe. Hi, Jeff. How are you doing this afternoon? Doing very well. So last week we were talking about the creation story in uh, Genesis chapter 2 and 3, uh, Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, including the first sin. And we um, talked about then what God had to say to the serpent and to the woman. And today I think we're going to start with what God had to say to Adam, right? Exactly. That's where we ended off. All right. So as we get started here, for those of you who are joining us, if you'd like to send comments or questions by way of the Facebook comment section, you can do that. Noah Andrews, our webcast engineer, will get those comments to us and we can talk about them here on the webcast. Uh, one of these days, maybe we'll actually set this up and take some live actual hear your voices as you send in your questions. We'll do it that way. But today you can send it the usual way. And um if you're watching by means of the Zoom app, you can send your comments and questions by clicking on the little Q&A thing at the bottom. You know, it seems like, Joe, we hardly ever get anybody sending comments or questions by the Q&A link. Every, almost everything comes in through Facebook. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, so thankful for everybody who's listening by, by both mediums. And uh, we've already got somebody saying hi. <laughs> so <laughs> hello, Natalie. All right. Uh, let's go to work here. Genesis chapter 3, God has spoken to the, to, to the serpent. He's spoken to the woman. And then in verse 17, the text says, Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. One of the things that catches my eye here is the fact that he's going to have to toil. But back in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15, before the man sinned, it said, The Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. So there was a labor involved even before the first sin, but now the language is a little different. It has a little different sound to it, doesn't it? Yeah, not only is there labor involved, there's pain involved, uh, the thorns and the thistles especially being emphasized here. And and really almost a, a fruitlessness, almost a sense of you're going to work hard to keep yourself alive, and however hard you work, ultimately you're going to fail. You're going to go back to the dust from which you came. We can put that in a word, a word that might come to mind would be futility or vanity, um, and vanity in the sense that some of the older translations use the word in the book of Ecclesiastes, all is vanity, nothing new under the sun. But I'm thinking of a passage in the book of Romans. I'm thinking of Romans, the eighth chapter. Ah. Romans, the eighth chapter, starting in verse 18, where Paul says, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed to us. There is a glory that man can still receive. Uh, it's, not, it's not something that's in this lifetime that is plagued by sin and the consequences of sin. Um, but he says in verse 19, the earnest expectation of the creation waits for the revealing of the sons of God 
for the creation was subjected to vanity, not of its own will, but by reason of him who subjected it, well, that would be God, in hope. Interestingly, the King James, if I remember correctly, puts a period after the word in hope. It, it ends with that, that's the end of the verse, and it ends with that as if that's the end of the thought. Uh, but it's in hope that the creation itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the liberty of the glory of the children of God. So the futility that we see imposed upon man and upon the creation in Genesis chapter 3 had a purpose. It was intended to motivate man to look beyond this existence. He needs a savior. He needs a savior who can deliver him out of this existence that is going to end in futility, having been corrupted by sin. Does that make sense? I think it makes really good sense. And, and at least from my vantage point, I, I see a, a hinting even here of, uh, of God's eternal plan um, you know, that he specifically mentions the idea of thorns being the result. Uh, I look toward Christ on the cross and think about the, the result of sin has brought thorns to the, the Son of Man. I like that connection. I'm not sure. In fact, I don't think I had ever thought about those two occurrences of thorns, but that's true because of the first sin, you have thorns, and then as Jesus is dying for our sin, it's thorns that are placed upon his head, mocking him, you know, kind of a mock crown being put upon his head. Yeah. Well, in, in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 20, it goes on and says, Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. You want to make some thoughts, comments there? you have any thoughts there? Well, you know, when we remember back to their recognition that they had uh eaten and that they were naked in chapter 3 and verse 7, uh, Adam and Eve tried to cover themselves with leaves. Uh, they made themselves coverings. And yet here uh, in verse 21, it is the Lord who makes tunics of skin and clothes them. It's been pointed out, uh, rightfully so, it's pretty hard to make a, a tunic of, of skins without the, the killing of an animal. And so, in a sense, there is a, a sacrifice, you know, blood is shed as a result of uh, this sin uh, here. And I think there's probably some lesson toward the sense of, of modesty for clothing. But I think the greater point is that man tries to cover his sin, tries to cover up his sin, feels guilt because of it, but it is really only God who can truly cover the sin, who can provide for the sin. Yeah, and so it is interesting. So you have the shedding of blood in order to cover, um, and um, they had made an attempt, but the attempt they had made was leaves, no shedding of blood, and it apparently was an inadequate covering. It was just a girdle, a loin covering. So there has to be the shedding of blood to, to provide an adequate covering here. That's kind of an interesting observation here. Um, so then we come down in the text, and in verse 22, the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now lest he stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground which he was taken uh, to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed a cherubim 
and a flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. And it makes it pretty clear, God doesn't want man coming back. Yeah, yeah, they, they are not going to have access to that again uh, as a result of, of their actions. So it's a profound contrast to me, this idea, God drives the man out and in effect excommunicates man, says, you're not coming back, you're out because of your sin. And yet it's not very far along in the Old Testament till we come to passages where we see God saying, I will dwell among you. And God has a plan in mind to restore the relationship between himself and man. But it's not a plan where God's just going to say, well, hey, you know what? Forget about it. Don't worry about it. It's no big deal. Just come on back. No, God has to deal with that sin. And he has a plan where he can do that in Christ. We've got a, a comment here, and it's from somebody you know quite well, Joe. And Exodus chapter, I mean, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, 18 has been cited as reference here. This I say, therefore, testifying the Lord, that you no longer walk as the Gentiles also walk in the vanity of their mind. It's an occurrence. I think that the point is another occurrence of this idea of futility or vanity, emptiness. Uh, these, the Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardening of their heart. Life on this earth, it really is futile apart from God. Um, you know, there was a, there was a song by the grassroots, um, and the title of the song was, hmm, title of the song was Live for Today. Um, and, and it's kind of a love song. Let's not worry about tomorrow. Let's just live for today, have pleasure while we can. And, uh, you know, the one way you could look at that, you could say, well, that kind of sounds like be not anxious for tomorrow, sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. But the, the era in which that song was written is an era in which the philosophy was, well, it was John Lennon's philosophy. Imagine no heaven, no hell. Let's just live our lives for the now and have fun and not be motivated by concern for what comes hereafter. But that, that's empty. It's futile. The fact is we're going to suffer pain and hardship in this life. And if it's all for nothing, if it's just so that you can get old and be miserable the last few years and and die of some kind of horrible disease in which you suffer for a long time, what's the point? Excellent observation. Good. The idea of that tree of life uh, and seeing that man is cast away from that, I think it's interesting, that phrase, tree of life, it's such a significant uh, part of Genesis 2 and 3, and yet we don't see it come back up in the Bible other than a couple of passages in the book of Proverbs, I think about four different times in Proverbs, it's mentioned talking about things like wisdom being a source of the tree of life and, and righteousness, uh, the fruit of righteousness being a tree of life, and a couple other passages. And then the only other place that it's mentioned is in the book of Revelation. And it's mentioned to one of the churches in chapter 2, and then it's mentioned at the very end of the book in Revelation 2.14, that man is given the right to the tree of life. And uh, I just think that that's really powerful when you see those bookends. Yeah. Has lost the right to the tree of life, and then it is given to him through uh, the sacrifice of Christ. And uh, so we, we start the book with this tragedy, and we close the Bible with this victory. 
Yeah, it encapsulates the whole story, the whole gospel message. Man separated from God by sin, separated from life, the tree of life, and then he's restored to it. Very good. Yep. What's in the middle of that? Uh, man's futile attempts to try to gain it himself, all the while God working his plan. Beautiful. Yeah, what, what's the turning point that brings man back to God, just to state yeah. the obvious? Yeah, the, 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 the tree that Jesus hangs on uh, that brings about life. All right. So now we as a, uh, I think our title today has to do with what we read in Genesis chapter four. The title of the webcast today is, is all religion acceptable or something like that. Um, and this is what, what the lesson we want to see in Genesis chapter four. So maybe you want to take us into this in Genesis chapter four, starting in verse one, Joe. You mean, how far you want me to read through? To however far you want to get to, to make a point. Okay. Now, <laughs> Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. Yeah. So I think it's interesting. A lot of times when people talk about Cain and Abel, it's usually the murder that's being discussed. Right. So much that happens in these earlier verses that sets the stage uh, for that, um, that we've got to, to learn to to appreciate, thus the title uh, for the lesson this week. So the thing that I think is important to notice here is both Cain and Abel are offering a sacrifice. Um, both are doing something that it, you'd have to say it's a religious act. And, and we could pause for just a moment and think about where they would get this idea, um, you know, Abel is described as a keeper of flocks. So whatever he's offering, it's a lamb or a goat or something like that. And you have to, you have to stop and think just a minute. Where in the world did he get the idea to do something like that? Suppose there had been no revelation. There had been no communication from God. It's just a couple of guys standing around going, hmm, you know what? God's really great. Yeah, I think so too. We'll do something for him. I don't know, what would you do for him? I don't know. See, boy, God, look, hey, I got an idea. Let's go stab a sheep to death and set it on fire. I bet God would really like that. But without revelation, that makes no sense whatsoever. It makes no sense, but we do get a clue that there was revelation because in Hebrews, the 11th chapter, and it's verse 4, I believe, we say that uh, by faith, Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice. Um, and when it says he did it by faith, that's a clue because Romans ten seventeen says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God or by the word of Christ, some translations. But you, you have faith based on what has been heard, based on what God has said, a word from God. And so if Abel offered his sacrifice by faith, there must have been some communication from God. And if there were communication from God, you can see God is already planting the seeds of understanding the sacrifice of Jesus that's coming in the future, who's going to be the ultimate Lamb of God. But Cain also offered the sacrifice, didn't he? 
Yeah, and, and that sacrifice also seems reasonable. It talks about him being a tiller of the ground. That's just what God had told Adam was going to, to take place. Uh, they were going to have to work the ground. Nothing uh, shameful in what he was doing, nor in what he was offering. Um, uh, we think about the first recipients of the book of Genesis, Moses, the author, the children of Israel in the wilderness. They had instructions to bring of uh, the, the harvest to, to God. Sure. So, so then why is it that uh, God finds Abel's offering acceptable and Cain's not? Well, exactly what it was about Cain's that was unacceptable, I'm not sure. But the point that I think we want to get across is just because I offer something to God, just because I engage in some religious activity, just because I do something that can be called worship, doesn't mean it's going to be pleasing to God. If I want to please God, I'd better do what God says. I'd better make my offering of faith, meaning it had better be based on what God has said, what his word has said. That's the mistake that apparently Cain made. Absolutely. Uh, I wouldn't uh, stay on this point a a long time, but I think it is worth exploring um, in verse 4, Abel also brought of the firstlings of his flock. And so it's not just what's stated in the text, but what's not stated. Abel brings the firstlings. It just says regarding Cain that he brought an offering. Hmm. Him bringing something like the first fruits, which is so emphasized in the book of Leviticus. Mm -hmm. Children of Israel would have received. To me, there's there's a hint there of, of what Cain's mistake was. But at the end of the day, Hebrews 11 makes it clear for us that if it's not a faith, then uh, it's, it's going to, to not be acceptable by God. And just to drive this point home, can I say, if I really believe God will like this, is it a faith? No, no. If, 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 I'm, if it's my decision, then that, that's, that's of my own faith. That's not faith in God. That's faith in what I think. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. All right. So if we can get that in our heads, then as we start thinking about our service to God, we need to be thinking about reading God's word, reading God's revelation, and figuring out what he wants me to do in service to him. And So a question here, in uh, Jeff, at the end of verse 4, what do we do with this idea? You know, we bring an offering to God, and sometimes I'll, I'll hear somebody say something like, well, I know that, uh, that I'm not living right, but... Uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not doing that; those things that are right, but, but I'm, I, I've still got Jesus in my heart, or I'm, I'm still with the Lord, or something like that. Is there something to be made from the connection at the, the last sentence in verse 4? The Lord respected Abel and his offering. Yeah, the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. In other words... Uh, you're probably going to have to help me with this point here, Joe, but the idea that those two go together, having respect for the individual and the offering. Yeah. Yeah. If if what we bring to God seems to me to be a representation of ourselves, um, you know, in, in Leviticus one, the, the idea of a substitution, we are, it's going to be accepted on our behalf. Right. So, if we're bringing whatever kind of worship to God that is half-hearted, um, you know, half thought out, or or simply you know superficial, God's not going to accept the offering, and He's not going to accept us. 
The, um, in Isaiah, the first chapter, there's the, the context there where God is talking about the Israelites who would come into the courts of his temple and they would offer the sacrifices. And he regarded their coming into the temple as just trampling his courts and said, who, who's asked for these sacrifices? Well, the, you know, you might say, well, God asked for them. Well, God's not pleased with them. Why is God not pleased with them? Well, because the people who are making these sacrifices were not sacrificing themselves. They were not humbling themselves before God. They were going through the outward motions of worshiping God. We see another passage. I'll just stick this in another place where we see something similar in 1 Corinthians 11, where the Corinthians are rebuked for making a mockery of, of the Lord's Supper. They were doing something that you could Paul observing the Lord's Supper, but they were conducting themselves and they were living their lives in such a manner uh, that, and they were even observing the Lord's Supper in such a manner that it was making a mockery of, of things. And so Paul says in verse 29 and 30, he that eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment unto himself if he doesn't discern the body, the body of Christ. For this cause, many among you are weak and sickly and not a few sleep. Uh, he seems to be saying, no, God is so displeased with what you're doing. You're suffering consequences for it, even though they were worshiping. Excellent point. I hadn't thought about that connection there. In verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 11, he says, Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. I suspect that would have been a shock for them to hear. <laughs> yeah. What do you mean? Together. Yeah, we did. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but it, it, is not, it is not respected by the Lord. Joe, we, we, have, we have a novel event here. We have a question that has come in by way of the Q&A tab <laughs> or a comment, but it's from Drew, and he's the one who wants us to use the Q&A tab. <laughs> but Drew says, when I decide for myself what God wants in my worship to him, then aren't I setting myself in place of God? I know what he wants. I know what's better. It's like the person who says, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you have a sincere heart. I used to think and say that. When I did, I was sitting as God on his throne if I am the authority on worship. That's really a well-worded point, and that's yeah, why. Yeah, yeah, good good point, Drew. Appreciate that. You know what? I, I, that's so good. I'd almost make Drew live here. But uh, <laughs> All right. Well, let's go back to the text here. There's another little point I want to make before we go on from just the first four verses in chapter 4, and that is this. Um, I don't remember what it was. I had a, a point I wanted to make a minute ago, and now it's gone for me. So let's move along here. Let's well, uh, let me, in, in verse 5, I think I read down through verse 5, if I'm not mistaken. He didn't respect Cain and his offering, and Cain was angry and his countenance fell. Um, you know, so his first sin was that he didn't offer up by faith as Abel had, and so he didn't bring something acceptable to God. And now he's angry about that. Yeah. He's done wrong, and he's mad. At the one whom he's wrong, really. <laughs> he's, yeah. And again, this is that passing the buck. Adam said, the woman whom you gave me. The woman said, the serpent. Now Cain's mad at God because, or mad at Abel because Abel's sacrifice was acceptable. And so when we talk to other people about their worship not being according to the revealed word, and they get angry at that. We ought not to be surprised by that. But to me, the, even the greater challenge is when somebody calls into question our heart or our worship, 
let's make sure that we don't get angry about that, but that we become reflective and, uh, and certainly seek to, to do the right thing for the right reason. So what does Cain end up doing? Does he take the Lord's counsel and uh, master the sin and get control of, of his, and decide to do well so that his countenance will be lifted up? I like that line, by the way, verse 6. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? How often, how often when we're feeling irritated or we're annoyed or whatever, we'll just focus on doing what we're supposed to be doing and if we'll do well, will not our countenance be lifted up? Will we not feel better? It's a powerful lesson. Amen, amen. But then what happens? Verse 8, Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. So this is a passage, a phrase that so many people have heard. Am I my brother's keeper? And in this day and age, there are people who I think have heard that expression. They don't realize it comes from the Bible. Um, and then there are other people who realize it comes from the Bible, but that's kind of what they remember about the story. Am I my brother's keeper? Well, what, what, is, what is Cain doing here uh, when he says, am I, am I my brother's keeper? He's trying to disavow any responsibility. Of course, he is, he's the one who's killed his brother. But he's trying to act like not only does he have no responsibility in the matter of killing his brother, but I'm not responsible for my brother. And uh, it, really running throughout these, these two chapters, chapter three and four, is just this theme of not taking responsibility for my own actions. And, and even a step further, isn't it? He asked him where he is. He knows where he is, but he says, I do not know. Uh, he, he very much knows where Abel is. He left him there on the ground. Um, uh, it's quite remarkable that he... He would think that he could get by with lying to God. So and then got, about what we do sometimes. Yeah. So we got a question that's going to take us to another topic. It's a good question, and we'll get to it in a minute. But Joe, let's go ahead and get through some points about this this murder and, and the consequences of the murder, and especially the idea of blood crying out from the ground for justice. And then we'll shift gears. And we'll get to a question that's come in from one of our viewers about worshiping with a congregation where there's an unqualified eldership. We'll get to that in a few minutes if we can here. So let's go on through the text here. And um, verse 10 and 11, he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. I want to sit on that idea for just a moment. Right there in those words, there's this idea that when there's a life taken, justice is called for. I think that's the significance of it. his blood is crying out from the ground. And uh, throughout the Old Testament, you see in the law of Moses, the idea of uh, where there's a death, there has to be bloodshed to atone for that death. Um, and blood has to be covered. Uh, when they kill a bird, they're to, to how, let me see, how do they, how's that worded over there in Leviticus, the 17th chapter? 
um, verse 13, when any man from the sons of Israel or from the aliens who sojourn among them in hunting catches a beast or a bird, which may be eaten, he shall pour out its blood and cover it with the earth. But here, Abel's blood is crying out from the ground as if uncovered. And what this points to, of course, is the fact that, at least I believe what this points to, is the fact that when we sin, we destroy our own lives, and that cries out for justice. And there's going to be blood that's going to be required to atone for that. Uh, and it's going to be Jesus' blood. So we saw the garments that God made for man, and now we see this expression. And all of this is this, this God statement, his blood, Abel's blood crying out from the earth. All this pointing ahead to the idea of, uh, when we've sinned, there's a crime being committed, there's, there's a death that has been caused, and there's something has to be done about that. People listen. We don't have a God who's going to just take us to heaven just because he's a nice guy. Our God is a good and loving and merciful God, but he is a just and holy God. And being a just God, he's not going to give us heaven and eternal life because we do not deserve it. He's not going to give it to us unless our sin can be taken away, unless we can be made righteous, holy, pure, cleansed from sin. And that's what's going to be accomplished in Jesus' death. Excellent. Uh, and I think that's also hinted at in what you read earlier in Hebrews 11, 4, uh, at the end of that, uh, though, and, and through it, he being dead still speaks. His blood was crying out uh, for this uh, righteous uh, uh, vengeance from, from God, uh, like the souls under the altar in Revelation 6, 9 through 11, uh, crying out, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you not judge and avenge our blood? upon them that dwell on the earth. Uh, righteous judgment from God is, is the cry of that. But then you also have what I think of as, as this uh, uh, powerful uh, both connection and contrast, I guess, if I can say it right. Uh, after reading about Abel and uh, his sacrifice and even being dead still speaks, right after that in Hebrews 12, when he talks about those that have come to Jesus, those that have uh, submitted themselves to the Lord, one of the things that they have come to is to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Mm -hmm. And so Abel's blood cried out for righteous judgment. Jesus's blood cries out for forgiveness of sins for the world. It's pretty remarkable about the, the God that we do serve, that if we are willing to submit to him, as you just pointed out, um, he has every intention to save those who, uh, who want to be. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, there are more things that we could do with this story here in Genesis, the fourth chapter, um, where the story goes on from here to Cain being concerned that somebody is going to take vengeance and do something to him and the question may arise, well, who is there to take vengeance? It was Adam and Eve, and they had two sons, and one of those is dead, so all we have left is Adam and Eve and Cain. Is he afraid that Adam or Eve are, gonna, are going to take vengeance? Who else is there? Well, there's certainly more people have been born. We don't know how much time has, has transpired, uh, but we ought not to think that the difference between chapters 3 and 4 is just a, a year or, or something like that. We have them as grown men who are working in the fields and, and so forth. Um, uh, and so 
uh, e- even in the, the next few verses and in the next chapter, you see the, the population uh, growing rather rapidly. Mm-hmm. Eventually, Adam has other children. Uh, it mentions sons and daughters in chapter 5 and verse 4. Cain is going to marry a woman. Sometimes people, where did Cain get his wife? Well, uh, apparently, one of his relatives. Uh, it's kind of an interesting thing because later on, of course, we get the idea you're not supposed to marry your sister. But in the Old Testament, there were a number of people who did marry a sister or half-sister or something like that. And, and just, just a real quick thought about this. Why is it we have laws against marrying your sister? Uh, it doesn't have something to do with the, the way that, uh, uh, not diseases, but uh, illnesses are passed on? Sure. If I have a genetic, if I have some genetic condition that it makes me predisposed to some kind of disease or if I'm a hemophiliac or whatever, and if I marry my sister and she has that same uh, genetic situation, then our children are, are very much likely to have that. Whereas maybe if I marry somebody who doesn't have that genetic flaw, then then that can be overcome. You know, the, it may be recessive. Maybe the children are, are carriers, but they don't suffer with it. So we talk about inbreeding. We talk about a population, even within animals, when you have inbreeding over generations, the, the animals get weaker, more prone to various diseases, more prone to various maladies. And that's true with people also. And it's because of these flaws in our genetic code. Uh, we sometimes refer to them as mutations. Um, but in the beginning, when I, Adam and Eve were created, presumably there would not have been any of those mutations. And so it's not for some time until that's going to be an issue. So as far as our rationale for saying don't marry your sister today, legally, in society, that rationale would not have been necessary in the beginning. And there were people who married sisters and cousins and so on. Well, so anyway, Cain gets his wife and then what happens from there on is we have a description of Cain's descendants, and it's not very flattering. And then we get a, descent, a description of uh, the descendants of Seth, who is another son that Adam and Eve have. And we get a, a more positive picture, a more spiritually focused picture of the descendants of Seth. But ultimately what happens is apparently these two families are intermarried and Everybody becomes corrupt, and that leads us into the story of the flood. But let's take time, Joe, to take a a question. This is kind of a difficult and challenging question that we've got to come in here. Um, We'll move on from our discussion of Cain and Abel. So the question is, does worshiping with a congregation where the eldership is not qualified affect my salvation in the sense that I'll be held accountable for it? Asking for a friend. You want to start with that? Or do you want me to? Um, I want you to. (laughs) (laughs) A couple of passages that come to my mind. Uh, One would be thinking about the examples that are given in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, where churches are described, and yet even within those churches, you have some members who are faithful and some who are not. And those who are faithful are not going to be um, judged based upon the unfaithfulness of other members of that same congregation. Mm-hmm. Church in Sardis in Revelation 3 is an example. Uh, you know, they had a name that they were alive, but they were dead. But then he goes on and says, but you have a few uh, who have the 
maintain the white garments. Uh, and so uh, you can be in a congregation that is not doing the right thing. They're, they're not behaving as they should. And there's all kinds of examples. There's, there's five different churches in Revelation that you have that uh, talked about and uh, out of the seven. And, uh, but in those churches, there were certainly in four of those five, there were people who were faithful even so. So, all right, that, that I think is an important point. Um, you can have a congregation in which there are serious flaws, and that doesn't mean that everybody is going to be condemned. God doesn't judge a congregation as a whole. We're each going to stand before him and give account for the things done in the body. Uh, the church at Corinth and all the problems that were there in Corinth, and yet Paul, as he writes to them, rebuking them for those problems and trying to set them straight, is on his way there to work with them. And he does go and work with them. Um, but when Paul goes and works with them, he doesn't just go in and say, well, there are problems here, but I'm not responsible for that. He goes in and, and he's obviously trying to teach them better. I don't know the circumstances uh, in the situation that our, our viewer has in mind, but let's just let's talk about some scenarios here. While we've said just because there are serious flaws in a congregation doesn't necessarily mean that everyone in that congregation is going to be condemned. Um, what if uh, I'm work, worshiping with a congregation where there's an unqualified eldership and I have an alternative, I could just as easily be worshiping with a congregation where there's a qualified eldership, but I choose to worship with the one where there's an unqualified eldership because I just feel that if I worship with the other congregation, they're going to find fault with something in my life. Now, it's not so much a problem of an unqualified eldership as my own priorities. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, then it becomes more of a question of what my motives are. Um, I think it's even interesting there in Corinth, and that's a, the example you gave there I think was really helpful when things are, are amiss in a congregation, they need to be dealt with. They, they need to be approached from a, a spiritual, humble, scriptural vantage point. But even the church in Corinth is identified as a church belonging to God, as Paul is writing to them with all of those problems that they have. Um, they are still God's people. Um, they need to repent. They need to make some changes. But he gives them the opportunity for that. So, in the illustration you gave, if my motive is for my own selfish purposes, I'm going to be held accountable for that. Um, and if I'm just ignoring and sweeping under the rug problems in the church, uh, then that's not what the Lord directs us to do either. Yeah, suppose I say, well, I don't have an alternative. This is the only congregation I can worship with. And yet I'm sitting there not addressing the problem. You know, First Timothy chapter 5 and verse 20, in the context talking about elders, says, Them that sin reprove in the sight of all, that the rest also may be in fear. Now, that's a charge that Paul gives to Timothy, an evangelist. And yet, when we talk about appointing elders in a congregation, we know that when they appointed deacons in a congregation in Acts chapter 6, the apostles said to the multitude of the disciples, Choose ye out from among you seven men whom we may appoint over this business. And so it was the whole multitude of the disciples who were responsible for putting forward those men who would serve as deacons. We have to suppose that when we come to appointing elders, it's again the same kind of thing. When Titus was left in Crete, they think, order the things that were wanting. Uh, when you look at the requirements that, that, that 
the men are going to have to meet who are going to be appointed Titus. This isn't going to know in each city what man meets all those qualifications. He can go and appoint men in the sense that he can go and teach. Here's the work that needs to be done. Here's the kind of man that God wants appointed to be able to do it. But ultimately, it's going to come down to the people in that congregation to put those names forward to choose those men. And so what I'm saying is this. In a congregation, the congregation is responsible responsible for its leadership to some degree they have some responsibility for who it is who's serving so i can't just kind of wash my hands the whole thing and say well you know they're not qualified but that's not on me i'm not going to say anything about it i ought to be taking it up with them yeah and 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 maybe we should also uh include in the conversation this is an assumption that they really aren't qualified right that's the that's what the question is given as you know, there needs to be humility on both parts. Is it that I think that they're not qualified? Is this in an area in which good and honest brethren maybe disagree about the exact way in which a particular qualification in First Timothy 3 or Titus 1 ought to be applied? Um, is my view a bit shaded because of my dislike for somebody in that elder's family or whatever, you know? If it's a clear cut then there ought to be more people in the congregation that sees that. The passage you brought up there from 1 Timothy uh, in chapter 5, you know, bringing the accusation against the elder with two or three witnesses. Right. If this is something that's clear, then it should be exposed. If it's just, well, I don't like that decision that they made, so I don't think they're qualified, or, you know, I view that one qualification differently than, uh, than others do, I need to practice a lot of humility with that, uh, particularly, I think, when it comes to a leadership. That's a good point. Excellent point. So we've kind of covered a lot of ground here. We're saying we don't know the particular situation that this question has to do with, but there are a lot of things to consider, and a lot of these things come back to my own attitude here. Um, that's right. important. Yeah, one, one of the quick verse that maybe doesn't seem like it has so much application, but I think it at least bears upon that attitude that you were referring to. When Jesus was rebuking the scribes and Pharisees, the leaders of his day in Matthew 23, the famous text of, woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, he starts by dealing to the, to the public, to the multitude, and he says, uh, whatever they tell you to observe that observe and do, but do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. You know, it is, it is our obligation to, uh, to obey and to serve, even in some cases where we don't see those people as being as respectable or as honorable as they should. I'm struck by the fact that Jesus condemns the leaders but tells the, the multitude they are in leadership, they need to be respected. Uh, you know, we, we ought not to grieve the, the eldership, as, as the Hebrew writer talks about. Good, 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 good point. So let me, let it, and you know what, to some degree, this brings us right back to the points we're making in Genesis chapter 3 and Genesis chapter 4. Adam pointed Eve, Eve pointed to the serpent, Cain saying, am I my brother's keeper, and, uh, and avoiding his own responsibility. Uh, let me take care of myself. Let me make sure my attitude is what it ought to be. And that may then require that I address some problem in the eldership, that I talk to the elders. But let me, first of all, look at myself and make sure that I am being what I ought to be. If I'm not, 
even if they aren't, I'm not in a very good position to, to have any influence with them. Yeah, exactly. Very good. All right. Well, we're coming down to the close of the webcast today. We just probably got about a minute and a half or just about a minute to go. So let's wrap things up here next week. I'm not sure. I think we're going to have a guest on. I hope we're going to have a guest on, but I haven't finished getting that lined up. So we'll have to see how that works out. I uh, want to thank Noah Andrews again for doing a good job as our webcast engineer each week. And Joe, any closing thoughts before we sign off for today? Let's close with one more verse in dealing with Cain and Abel and seeing where, where this sin and, and uh, disrespectful worship leads. In 1 John 3, 12, he's talking about how we should love one another, not as Cain, who was a wicked and murdered, murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. Uh, you know, that's where the, the sin of Cain and Abel began with the sin against God. Good, good, good. All right, excellent. Thank you all for watching today, and we hope you'll join us again next Wednesday afternoon at 3 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Now, thank you. Bye-bye.